1: Hello and welcome to Enlightened Empaths, your community for the spiritually awakened, where we discuss, explore, and connect with fellow empaths, healers, intuitives, and seekers. Hello, Empaths! This week we're talking with Dr. Greg Hammer about his new book, Gain Without Pain. GAIN is an acronym for gratitude, acceptance, intention, and non-judgment, which we all know are hugely important aspects that we need to consciously cultivate in our lives to achieve greater happiness. But before we dive into this, let us tell you a little bit more about Dr. Hammer. He's a professor at the Stanford University School of Medicine. He's also a pediatric intensive physician, a pediatric anesthesiologist, and a mindfulness expert. Welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you on.
2: Wonderful to be with you both.
1: I want to start off with the main thing that I took away from reading your book is that we really can rewire our brains, even if we were raised in a, in a negative home or a pessimistic family, and we've maybe gotten locked into like a victim mentality or a woe is me outlook through practicing this gain method, we can actually change that. And I loved in your book, you said you talk about neuroplasticity and you say even after 30, we can do this. And I thought, well, <laughs> we can't teach an old dog new tricks. So can you can you talk about that in in layman's term for our listeners?
2: Sure. Well, I think one thing to appreciate is that our brains have evolved over tens of thousands of years to be hardwired in ways that apparently veil or interfere with our ability to be happy. And let's face it. Uh, the only thing that all almost 8 billion of us want is to be happy. And, you know, we can take really good care of ourselves. So we live a longer life. But if we're not happy, it's more of a curse to live a long life than it is a blessing. So the ways in which our brains are wired include that we have a negativity bias. We tend to focus on the negative, remember the negative, embrace the negative, and forget about the positive. And there's so many examples of that. There's a couple of examples in the book. Uh, Tell the
1: about your friend who had this perfect day in surgery and remembered the one tiny mistake she made because that's such a good example of how we work.
2: Sure, that is a good example of our negativity bias. So I was working with a trainee of uh, uh, one of our fellows, and uh, I do cardiac anesthesia primarily. We had four difficult cases one day that involved surgery in the chest and. They were very challenging. The patients were, were sick and complex. Uh, each case involved some specialized techniques where we put catheters in arteries and veins and special tubes in and an epidural catheter in one case for, for post-operative pain relief. And she did an outstanding job. All four cases went very well. The patients were all off the ventilator at the end of the case. They all emerged comfortably with stable vital signs. Uh, in one of the infants we took care of, she was unable to place a catheter in the artery in the wrist that we were placing to monitor blood pressure continuously and to draw blood for lab testing during the operation. So I stepped in and did that. But everything else she did flawlessly and, and her thought process was was wonderful, way beyond her years. So at the end of the day, as I typically do, we debriefed. We went over everything. I told her she got an A plus and what a great job she did and the next day i was talking to her and she said she went home and she had dinner with her husband and as she was getting ready to go to bed that night she was as we do taking stock of her day and did she think about all the things that went well which were the overwhelming majority of of her performance was wonderful uh she no. she focused on that one procedure that she couldn't do that she had to ask me to come in and do and that's an example of our our, picking out the one little negative thing out of a host of positive things and focusing on it and and being frustrated. So that's an example of our negativity bias. You know, it occurs to me that often we get out of bed in the morning and, you know, maybe our knee is a little sore from something we did the other day, or maybe our back is a little stiff. We need a new mattress and we focus on that. And so our, our day begins with, negative thoughts of you know this is bothering me that's hurting you know why me and we ignore the fact that you know 99 percent of our bodily functions are working incredibly well you know and as a physician uh taking care of kids in whom things are not all going well it's a miracle to me that our bodies work as well as they do and so when we have a little bit of a sore knee or a little bit of a stiff back and we focus on that instead of all the things that are working well, you know, the fact that we get up and we have to go to the bathroom and we, we do that successfully to me, that's a little miracle. And so, you know, every time I'm emptying my bladder, I'm thinking, wow, this is just so amazing how the kidneys work. They filter the blood. They make this fluid. We were able to get rid of it. All the hardware between my kidneys and the outside world is, open and working well, I'm grateful for that. So yes, we have a negativity bias. There's no question about it. And another way that our minds work, um, which I talk about in the book, is that you know we have an obsession with the past and the future. We know that happiness resides in the present moment. So whenever we're truly happy, of course, you know we can sit and think about wonderful memories with friends and family, and that makes us happy. So to a degree, Focusing on the past is certainly adaptive. We want to recognize mistakes that we've made even as long as we don't obsess over them, but we don't want to repeat them. So we do have to sort of recognize them. Uh, and then likewise with the future, we, we think of the future in an adaptive way when we're making a plan. Uh, and, you know, the gain practice, for example, and and mindfulness practices in general require purposefulness. They require a plan. So it's adaptive to think about the future to that extent and you know maybe to think about fun times ahead. But beyond that, we overthink the past and the future. And when you combine that with our negativity bias, when we obsess over the past, we often feel regret and shame. Um, we blame ourselves for things we did or didn't do or said or didn't say. And we generate a lot of low self-esteem and depression And when we overthink the past combined with our negativity bias, we often generate a lot of fear and anxiety. We catastrophize. We think of the worst thing that might happen. Oh my gosh, you know, what if this happens and, you know, I can't get to where I need to be on time or, you know, something happens with one of my children and and we catastrophize and that generates a lot of fear and anxiety. And so I think this is why in part, at least depression and anxiety are two of the most common mental health issues that we face. So yes, our brains are wired this way. Um, And the good news is that we have this quality you mentioned called neuroplasticity. And that means that we can actually rewire the way our brains are wired. So for example, this negativity bias, we can actually think of the positive, we can train our minds to go to the positive, and with regard to our obsession with the past and present we can exercise our brains to be more present and if we have this plan this intention the ion gain we can gradually begin to rewire our brains preferably with a daily practice and as i said you know our brains have been wired this way over tens of thousands of years of evolution so we're not going to rewire them overnight but the good news is we should take advantage. And we have this wonderful quality called neuroplasticity, and we're going to rewire our brains, baby steps, little tiny steps incrementally each day. And that's, and that's in fact how we learn. And, uh, you know, I think this is a, this is a really wonderful property of the way that our brains work.
3: That's incredible. And one of the things you mentioned in your book is that happiness is a goal. And you talk about how we can get into those repetitive patterns with negativity. And I think that it becomes in some, for some people, a self-fulfilling prophecy of it's never going to get better. It's always going to be this way. And it just becomes a, a very vicious um, loop tape. But then you, you put this line and I absolutely loved it. And you said the impact of compassion and forgiveness on happiness. And Samantha and I talk to a lot of folks and and also in our own practices, we we really push being of service, helping other people, being present. Could you talk a little bit about that and the connection with breaking free from negativity so you can embrace the happiness?
2: Well, there are a couple of important points that you just made. One of them is, uh, especially I think as we get a little bit older and we were talking before the recording about uh, some physicians that are retiring and so on, I think, especially as we get to that point in life, uh, but certainly throughout our lives, there's three things that we need uh, in order to be happy beside, you know, the mindfulness practice and so on. But we need to be growing, we need to be constantly learning, we need to be engaged with community, there are lots of data showing that our relationships, uh, our close relationships, a happy marriage, if if that's possible for us. being plugged into friends and and other family members on whom uh, we rely this uh, leads to uh, a greater uh, longevity and also a greater health span we we're healthier we're happier so we need to be learning we need to be engaged in community and the third thing we need to do to your point is to be serving we need to be helping others and so i focus very much on these things as i sort of reached the end of my medical career, um, you know, I'm very focused on continuing to learn and continuing to be in community and giving back. And I think these things are all necessary.
1: Yeah, they so really I, are. You,
2: you mentioned forgiveness and, and the, you know, the role of forgiveness and happiness and a few other things. So, um, you know, we, I'd be happy to address the next part of your question.
3: That'd be lovely. Thank you.
2: So yes, there is a chapter in the book on forgiveness and compassion, and I'm very lucky to have as a dear friend uh, with whom I have lunch every month or so, including tomorrow, is a guy named Fred Luskin, and Fred is really an expert on forgiveness and compassion. He started an institute, a program at Stanford um, on forgiveness and compassion, and um, you know he's written some best-selling books, Forgive for Love, for example, Forgive for Good, I think, is another one of his books. So he co-wrote that chapter on forgiveness and compassion with me, and I think, again, you know, you you also mentioned this sort of positive feedback loop of negativity. So we're negative, and then this begets more negativity. And yes, that that is an example of neuroplasticity. When we keep having the same thoughts over and over again, we're actually rewiring our brains, or further entrenching the existing wiring of our brains with negativity. So yes. Uh, uh, just as uh, positivity begets positivity, negativity also begets negativity, and and unfortunately, that's the the tendency that we have based on the way our brains are wired is to be very negative. But with regard to forgiveness, it's it's very similar because we we all have instances where we feel as though perhaps a friend has trespassed on a relationship, or uh, perhaps we have you know lost our job or lost a friend and you know we have anger toward those that we think are responsible the perpetrators and this is a uh another example of negativity this sets up a lot of negative thinking we we're blaming and fred is one actually who uh sometimes his students have trouble with this but he acknowledges their circumstances when they bring uh, a matter of forgiveness in their own life To his attention, or or something negative that happened to them, he acknowledges the difficulty in accepting whatever that was, for example, but also uh, puts some responsibility on the student for how they process it. So, yes, um, the A in gain is acceptance. And that's an acknowledgement that there is pain in life. And the pain is as much a part of life as joy, I believe. There's almost like a symmetry there so you know for example as you learn from reading the book i lost my son at the age of 29 six years ago and that pain will always be there but as you also read in the book there's a formula and you know how much we love formulas in medicine (laughs) suffering equals pain times resistance so the pain is there but the degree to which we resist it and there's a lot of different ways that resistance is manifest the greater our suffering so through really working, having a plan, having a purposeful way to open our hearts and accept that which is uncomfortable or painful, uh, we will decrease our suffering. But this is up to us. This is really our responsibility. And so, just as we suffer pain uh, at the hands of others, apparently, and we may blame them or uh, you know feel as though uh, they've they've done something terrible to us we also need to take responsibility for opening our hearts to acceptance and that includes forgiveness and feeling compassion for the other person is part of that process i think because those who act poorly those who are bullies for example are generally behaving that way out of insecurity so why is it that this person needs to brag or you know make sure they're name dropping and always kind of inflating uh to others their their you know their wonderful qualities it's because they're lacking something and they're trying to fill that void with uh the sort of false self esteem and uh you know it basically stems from an insecurity in most cases i think and so we should be compassionate toward that person our first reaction might be negative toward that other person but, in the end, we should feel compassion because it reflects unhappiness on their part and and really who wants to be insecure and unhappy.
1: Yeah, thank you well, which brings us to the end and gain, which is non-judgmentalness. I think being non-judgmental is incredibly hard, especially if we're going to mirror that to ourselves because I think we are often our own worst critic. But I think when you're talking about, whether it's gratitude or acceptance or intention, I think you have to do all of those steps with this non-judgmental attitude, right?
2: The gain elements are really interwoven. So I think gratitude, acceptance, intention, and non-judgment are really the threads uh, that are interwoven that form this tensile, strong, uh, you know, rope, I guess, if you will, that that helps uh, pull us up, help, helps elevate us. Non-judgment is, uh, again, it's difficult because our brains are wired to be very discerning. We are always evaluating everything in our environment, um, including other people. And as you mentioned, ourselves and with our negativity bias, we often translate that discerning into negative judgments. And you're right, there are lots of data in the psychology, psychiatric literature, showing us that we are our own harshest critic. And there's, a, I think, a very positive cognitive behavioral approach to that, which is when we're feeling really down on ourselves, pretend that we're talking to a good friend. So the circumstances that are resulting in our being very self-critical, imagine that a friend is telling us about their circumstances, which are the same, and ask ourselves, would we judge this person? Uh, Would we be harshly critical toward them? And the answer is almost certainly no. We would say, you know, you're just a human being. We're all fallible. We're all mortal. We're all imperfect. We are just the human beings that we are. And there doesn't have to be a good and bad about it. And we need to apply that same philosophy toward ourselves. So the way I sort of propose imagery during the Gain meditation which as you know, can be as little as a three minute practice in the morning. We focus on the breath and we can talk more about the physiologic importance of that. And then we go through gratitude, acceptance, intention, and we get to non-judgment. And one image I like to portray is, uh, is the image of the earth apparently suspended in space, one of these beautiful NASA images. So we see the earth, we see the space around the earth, the blue oceans, the the land, maybe thin cloud cover over parts of the planet. And we think this is a beautiful planet, but it is intrinsically neither good nor bad. It's just a planet. The earth is just the planet that it is. It's neither good nor bad. And therefore, it's only logical for me to think I am just a human being. I am just the person that I am. I'm neither good nor bad. I am just the person that I am and then we sort of focus on the I am and go back to the breath. And we've we've done the gain contemplative practice at that point, And we open our eyes and we're ready to go out in the world. But yes, this is a way of slowly with baby steps, incrementally rewiring our brains to drop the judgments. And when we have this daily practice, this intention, what happens is when we're We've done our game practice. We're, we're out in the world. We're riding, we're driving our car to work and we're on a two lane, a four lane road, two, two lanes each way. And we're in the left lane. The guy who's in the right lane in front of us suddenly changes into our lane without using their turn signal. And we start to make all these judgments about that person, right? He's, he or she is inconsiderate, a bad driver, et cetera, et cetera. And when we've done the gain practice, a little light bulb goes off and reminds us that we're judging. And we may have a little smile to ourselves. We actually might get a little hit of dopamine when we have a laugh at our own expense that we're suddenly being judgmental when we just pledge to drop the judgments and see the world is neither good or bad and others the same way. And we actually get a little bit of pleasure out of this recognition. And so This is what happens in incremental baby steps in the process of rewiring our brains. We have these light bulb moments when we're being ungrateful or resisting or being unintentional and lapsing into our old ways of thinking or judging someone or something or ourselves. A light bulb goes off and reminds us what we're doing, and we can quickly reroute our thoughts back to a healthy way of seeing the world.
3: So, what I love about this is that. It's an ever evolving process. And as you were speaking, I was thinking about, you know, you may grow up with certain uh, biases or expectations or familial patterns that can give you a certain mindset about who people are, or how they are on the planet. And then you you may move, you may choose, you may realize that's not the way I believe things. And you go through these steps, whether intentionally or or just through through learning and growing but it never ends and that goes back to your point about we're always growing we're always learning but there, it's never too late to do this because i think some people say oh my family's always done that or this is what people in my profession do but once you go inside go intrinsically into yourself it does give you that much more to give but it also i agree with you 100 percent. it improves your quality of life and it allows you to help someone else step up and say, you know what, there's a way out. So that's incredible. And gratitude is my whole deal. I have no doubt about gratitude can save your ass when you put your mind to it.
2: <laughs> well, absolutely, you know, I think it's empirically part of happiness, that is gratitude. You know, we, mm-hmm. we, we may know somebody or we certainly can imagine somebody who's poor and happy. We can imagine, or, or maybe we know somebody who's physically challenged and happy. But you can't even really imagine somebody who's ungrateful and happy. Right. So I think that's a little thought experiment that really nails down the idea that gratitude is, is an intrinsic part of happiness. And it's not difficult. I mean, you know, people say, oh, I, I, this is not the way I think. It's going to be hard for me to change. Well, you know, it's not difficult at all in just a few seconds to really connect with gratitude. Right. So we start to think of that achy back when we're getting out of bed. Well, just imagine how perfectly the rest of our body is working. You know, we slept, we got, even if it wasn't perfect sleep, we got uh, all that uh, restorative benefit of having our brain go through its, you know, phases of sleep. And we're, we're able to actually move our body and get ourselves out of bed and, you know, go walk to open the blinds and, There's the outside world and we have this safe place. We slept all night and, you know, we're not at risk of uh, some of the things that others around the world might be when we're in our homes. We're not worried about getting bombed or shot in general. Most of us can say that. I mean, there's so many things you can just easily connect to that uh, resonate gratitude. It's not really so difficult.
3: No, and it's the baby steps. And some days, all it might be is, I'm so grateful I had something to eat today. Or I'm so grateful that I didn't get in that accident, or that I had a good conversation with someone who's adversarial. And I truly, in my soul, believe that even those tiniest steps, you build momentum, and it just becomes part of who you are, not what you don't have to concentrate on it anymore.
2: Yes, and momentum is really, you know, the neurologic process of nerves firing and connecting with other neurons or nerves um you know secreting their little neurotransmitters so they can communicate with each other and then strengthening these new neural pathways so it's uh you know it's like building new roads you know uh one uh foot at a time let's say and and these become uh the new pathways in our brain
1: Whenever I create a new habit, I have to have a visual for me. So like if if I'm creating a new habit of going to the gym every day or meditating every day, I always have to print out a weekly calendar and i just I just stick it to my bedside table and I check it off every day that I did it. That helps me a lot. And you talk about in your book, the difference between a goal and an intention, because I would think of that as a goal. But when I read your book, I was like, oh no, that was me intending to meditate every day, intending to go to the gym. Because you say a goal is future-oriented, it's external, it's focused on specific achievement, whereas an intention is more present, it's internal changes and shifts. And I and I just think that's really important for people to consider that these big changes we're talking about, they're not goals, they're intentions for shifting our life. Is there a time frame you can give us for how long it takes to rewire our brain? Is it Thirty days, thirty years.
2: <laughs> well, first of all, I would say as far as the difference between intentions and goals, the goal is like maybe a New Year's resolution. You know, this year I would like to lose fifteen pounds. So it's something that's kind of off in the horizon. You're going to have days when you're you're down on yourself for overeating or what have you, and not making progress toward your goal. So goal is sort of a long term thing, and and I think in many cases we don't really achieve our goals. And so we it, it becomes um, another cause of us being self-critical. Whereas an intention is something that is happening right now. And so this is what I mean to do right now or today. You know, it's a short-term commitment. And so I would say that when you post on your refrigerator that calendar of going to the gym with check boxes Uh, you know, Monday through Sunday, that's, you're setting your intention. You're you're planning on doing this right now. I'm putting this on the refrigerator right now. Um, I'm doing this starting today. So that is what I would call an intention. Whereas you might have a long-term goal of saying, well, in the next year, I want to, you know, increase my workouts and get jogged two miles in 15 minutes or what have you. That's a longer term thing, but you're, what you're describing really is an intention. Your intention to establish this habit, in fact, rewiring your your lifestyle, your brain in a way um, by doing those things. And so, yes, I would consider those intentions. And um, remind me the second part of your comment. <laughs>
1: the the time frame of achieving this yes. rewiring.
2: Right. Well, again, I mean it's it's like everything else in life, there's no destination, right? It's a process like life itself. There's no end point, uh, you know, there's no place to get to. Uh, it's a, simply a process, it's a journey. And so with regard to the time frame of rewiring your brain, as I said, I think after, for example, starting a game practice, just after a couple of mornings, spending three or four minutes over those mornings, I think we start to have those light bulb moments. So, you know, I do my game practice today for the first time or the second or third time. And then, you know, I get on my bicycle and I'm, in my case, riding my bicycle to work and I'm riding down this narrow lane and there's somebody walking ahead of me. And as I get closer, I see, well, they're kind of walking in the middle of the path or in my way. And then as I get closer, I see they have buds in their ears and they're looking at their screen when we're riding, you know, we're walking and riding down this beautiful lane with a beautiful canopy of leaves and the trees high above the sun filtering through. Why are they on their screen? So I'm making all these judgments and a light bulb goes off. And I remember I just did my gain meditation. I decide to drop these judgments. And as I pedal past this person, I look down and smile and they look up at me and smile and I get a little dopamine hit. So instead of starting the day with a negative interaction full of judgment, You know, I have actually done something positive. I've dropped the judgment, and I've had this positive little episode of eye contact and connection with this with this person. So I think that can happen very immediately. I think that you know is something that can happen even the night before we actually do the practice. We say, okay, I'm going to do this game practice for three minutes. So I tell my trainees, okay, set your alarm. If you're going to get up at 5:30 in the morning to go in and set up the operating room set your alarm for 527. And instead of going to bed at 10 o'clock, go to bed at 957. So you're actually setting your intention the night before, you're actually opening yourself up to receiving these benefits even before you start. So, you know, I think the benefits are are pretty immediate and only get greater over time.
1: Yeah, I agree.
3: So, What I'm thinking of is a lot of our listeners are very empathic people. They're very sensitive people. That's our target audience. That's Samantha and I. And the triggers that we may have from certain people or circumstances in our life that are, they know where our buttons are because they're the ones who installed them. So using the gain method and that judgment piece, is there anything else you would add to that with, say, specific people in your life or circumstances, because we all have triggers that we may be saying, I don't want to judge this person for the behavior or the choice that they're making. But there's something with certain things that they're they're a little more tough than the others.
2: <laughs> yes. Well, you know, I'd go back to imagining you're talking to a friend who's got this person in their life that pushes their buttons and really kind of gets on their nerves and what would you tell that friend well you might say first it's important to discern whether this is a person i want to spend time with or not now if it's somebody in your family that you live with uh, then you know that the answer to that would be yes this is somebody that i have to spend time with but you know in some cases it might be a friend and then you have to discern you know i have a half hour to have a cup of coffee with a friend today i can get together with friend a who's Pushing my buttons or I can get together with friend B, who's pragmatic, forward-looking, non-judgmental, grateful, positive. Well, that's a matter of discerning. I'd rather get together with friend B. And again, it doesn't mean I have to judge either one of them as good or bad. I'm just discerning. So imagine you're talking to a good friend and what advice would they give you, I suppose. And, you know, if it's somebody that is not important enough that it's somebody you need to spend time with and the buttons they press are sufficiently potent, and elicit <laughs> negative feelings of a sufficient magnitude, you may discern that you prefer not to spend time with that person. But if it's somebody that you're stuck with, um, you know, then I think again, what advice would you give? Would you give to a good friend? You might remind them that this person's behavior is a manifestation of their own unhappiness that the only reason they're intentionally annoying you is that they have a little insecurity or uh you know somehow they feel like they need to put you down in order to bolster their own sense of self-worth. And once you go to that level of understanding, then you might be more forgiving and compassionate and not judge them. But I think you you know I I love the idea of, of pretending that you're talking to a good friend.
3: It is because it gives you that moment to just take a step back and not be as reactionary. And sometimes I'll do that when I am feeling very frustrated with people. I will visualize a soul light in their chest and I'll say, they have a soul light, look at that. Don't look at the behavior. I've worked with behaviorally disordered children for years. And that was my thing. I would say, look at the light, Denise, just focus on that because that's what we all have that makes us part of the 8 billion on the planet. And I think when we can get to that place, but when you're in that reactionary place, that's not always the easiest thing to do.
2: You know, I've actually um, been asked and therefore been talking a lot about the vagus nerve and uh, how we can utilize the vagus nerve to let go of stress. And so um, it really, one way to activate the vagus nerve, which is part of the parasympathetic nervous system that counteracts the fight or flight sympathetic nervous system. So whereas the sympathetic nervous system, when activated, causes our heart rate to go up, our blood pressure to go up, our blood sugar to go up, lots of unhealthy effects on our physiology. The parasympathetic nervous system, largely mediated through the vagus nerve, does the opposite. It slows our heart rate, lowers our blood pressure, lowers our blood sugar. It's beneficial to our heart, to our brain. It increases brain blood flow and has other positive physiologic effects on us. What's What, what are some good ways to activate the vagus nerve when we have that sort of sympathetic nerve? Not I'm not talking about being a sympathetic person, but right. the sympathetic autonom- part of the autonomic nervous system, uh, which is sort of the stress response, or we're experiencing that stress response as a manifestation of sympathetic nervous system activation, what are some good ways to counteract that when that person is causing this sympathetic activation? Going to the breath, it turns out that slow intentional breathing activates the vagus nerve, slows our heart rate, lowers our blood pressure, and that's why I start the GAIN practice with sitting in a comfortable place hopefully a quiet place closing the eyes and focusing one's attention on the breath slowing it down slowing the in breath through the nose to a count of three pausing to a count of three and then without effort slowly letting the breath out to a count of four and so when each of those phases is three seconds three seconds four seconds that's a 10 second breathing cycle we've slowed our breath to and that means we're breathing at six times a minute since there are 60 seconds in the minute and each breath is 10 seconds and doing that activates the vagus nerve and again you know it has all these beneficial um effects on our physiology slows our heart rate lowers our blood pressure lowers our blood sugar um and does a bunch of other things through our hormones and and otherwise that are beneficial and so when you do this practice again baby steps you're learning to respond to stress by focusing on your breath slowing your breath and you know the expression if somebody's something's bothering you before you react take a breath so take a slow intentional breath or two or three take 10 or 20 seconds or even 30 seconds before you respond and this is a wonderful way of keeping the sympathetic, adverse sympathetic responses in check. And again, baby steps, you end up having this conditioned response where you end up after days, weeks, months of doing this practice, responding to an annoying, irritating, noxious stimulus with focus on your breath. I'm walking down the hall, I'm going to meet with my boss, I'm feeling the stress when we're stressed, by the way, of course, in many times the muscles in our chest and our abdomen are under tension, we're not taking a deep breath. And we can go actually for a day or two without really taking a deep breath and the little microscopic air sacs in our lungs begin to collapse, we call this atelectasis. Therefore, the oxygen in our blood is diminished. Whereas taking a slow, deep breath expands those little air sacs or alveoli, gets rid of this atelectasis, increases the oxygen in our blood, increases the oxygen flow to our brain and our heart and our other organs. So there's so many physiologic benefits to slow, deep breathing. And this can become a conditioned response where actually we, we respond to stress with focused, attentive, slow breathing. It's really quite wonderful.
1: Those are all such good reminders, you know, because we we do that a lot in my yoga class. She'll always have us put our hand on our heart and focus on deep breathing. And every time I do it, I think, gosh, this feels so good. I need to do it more and more and more. And yet I think it's silly that we need that reminder to breathe deeply. What are you working on now? Are you working on a new book?
2: Yes, I'm, I'm writing a book with... Uh... My primary collaborator is a PhD psychologist who treats teenagers with a mindfulness-based approach, and uh, I have a second co-author who's a wonderful guy. We really complement each other in terms of the way we think. The book is currently entitled A Mindful Teen, so it's about teenagers and how, through mindful living, incorporating all of these things that we're talking about today as a family, as parents, as teachers, as school counselors, school administrators, as therapists, uh, we can all improve the way that our teens are interacting with the world and themselves and in a more mindful, positive way. And so uh, actually right now the book is, uh, my book agent is just farming it out to publishers. We just finished the book proposal and a sample five chapters, so fingers crossed.
1: Yes, we will say prayers and positive intentions for you. That's exciting and much needed. I feel like teens today are so disconnected and staring at TikTok all the time. They need that focus on mindfulness and parents need to understand how to model it for them. So you'll have to come back on the show when that comes out. We'd love to. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, everyone. The book, again, is called Gain. We'll put links to his website and where you can purchase the book and the show links. And we'll also post it on social media. We hope you guys have a beautiful week. Please remember, as always, to show up, do great work, and share your light. Take care.
2: Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants.